You do the self-checkout, there's nobody watching you. You scan one item, it goes through, wave the other one through, maybe it doesn't scan, and you just kind of look around and you just throw it all in the bag, right? Uh-huh. Now, have you done that? I've done that. It's just like a little psychological, I'm sticking it to the man. I don't really um, feel like that's sticking it to the man. One thing that I do do, now in New York, you have to buy your shopping bags. Yeah. And so I won't scan that. But I think that... Oh, I so stick, you do it too. I know, I'm sticking oh, it to the man of the government. The government mandate that required that I buy that bag. Welcome to Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, two big announcements on the front are actually one big announcement, one small announcement. Uh, today is our first episode of our new Spanish language podcast, Pulso y Pendulo. And they're going to be talking about the DeSantis decision to send migrants to Martha's Vineyard. Uh, they're going to be talking about hurricane hitting Puerto Rico, Fiona, and the Dominican Republic. And they've got a special guest from CBS News who's going to be coming on, who's on the ground talking about recovery efforts and just that, you know, those islands attempts to just try to stave off a massive catastrophe there. Mm -hmm. uh, so really exciting. Go to Pulso y Pendulo, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, et cetera. Uh, and another thing for our, our listeners who are in Texas, I'm heading down this uh, afternoon to the Texas Tribune Fest. I'm going to be interviewing uh, tomorrow afternoon Tim Miller, Republican strategist, and Liz Smith, Democratic strategist. So if you're around in Texas uh, and in Austin, come check us out and Ricky, I think we're going to be following your hero, Andrew Yang. So if I run into him, what mm -hmm. should I say to him? Um, tell him that your co-host is a Yang ganger. Should we bring him on? <laughs> yeah, be down. Well, I think he... He was a fun interview. I interviewed him once for the New York Post. He was actually a really high energy interview, despite it being a phone interview for a written article. He was fun. Well, um, I'll, I'll try not to ask him what a bodega is. Um, <laughs> At least he didn't call it a bodega, wasn't that? Yeah. Jill Biden's... Is that what Biden said? Jill Biden. She was oh, talking Jill. about the bogatas. Well, yeah. I, At least he could say it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's a low bar. <laughs> well, we've got a lot to talk about. It's an exciting time to be a New Yorker. We've got uh, vaccine mandates uh, being lifted in the private sector, but not in the public sector. We're going to talk about that distinction. We've got uh, self checkout uh, in Wegmans, which is a supermarket chain upstate New York, among other places that is pulling back from this self-checkout. We're gonna talk about why they did it and what it says about us as a society. <laughs> and we've got uh, data about why parents all across the country are changing schools, where they're going, why they're making mm -hmm. decisions they're making. But we're gonna start with some big news on some cases we've been following and in involving our former president. Ricky, where should we start here? Yeah, so, um just recently, we have two major movements in um, Trump's legal world that are very negative for him, um, unrelated, but in rapid succession. First, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which is a three-judge panel, two of which are Trump appointees, one an Obama appointee, ruled in favor of the DOJ, um, which now investigators can use classified documents. Um, it negates the uh, Judge Eileen Cannon's ruling for Trump to have a special master that was holding up the investigation process. And Trump was on Hannity last night. Is there a process? What was your process to declassify? It doesn't have to be a process, as I understand it. You know, there's different people say different right. things. But as I understand, there doesn't have to be. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it. So that's what Trump. <laughs> even by thinking it. Even by thinking it. Got it. So that's what that's what Trump's uh, case remains to be at the moment. But um, first, Ravi, can you remind us what the special master would have done that Judge Cannon was putting in place for Trump. Yeah, I think one thing that's worth pointing out about this ruling 
is that two of the three judges on the 11th Circuit panel that ruled mm -hmm. were appointed by Trump. Yeah. So a victory for an impartial justice system here. The This essentially means, from what we can tell, that this special master who's been sitting in Brooklyn and mm -hmm. started holding hearings uh, this past week uh, about the documents and actually seemed to be moving along expeditiously to try to dispatch with the whole case. He didn't seem like he really wanted to be involved in this. Mm -hmm. and. It seems like that whole effort is probably on pause unless the Supreme Court overrules the 11th Circuit yeah. here. So this is gonna go to potentially an emergency ruling Supreme Court. Now the Supreme Court could just decide not to even um, weigh in at all, which mm -hmm. is very likely, at which case the 11th Circuit ruling holds and the government now does what it does with these documents. They don't have to go through the special master anymore. I think that's probably the most likely scenario. You never know what the Supreme Court but based on what you saw from the 11th Circuit, uh, and based on what people like, you know, even Trump appointees themselves, like Bill Barr, mm -hmm. were saying, there's not a lot of legal precedent underlying what uh, Judge Cannon uh, ruled previously. Yeah. So it seems like this is going to move forward uh, without the the uh, special master's involvement, unless something dramatic happens at the Supreme Court. And how will the lack of the special master being involved materially change this investigation and the process or prospects for Trump? I think it just speeds it up. Okay, that's the basic. You know, I think in the end, based on this judge uh, who was a Reagan appointee, who's the special master, seemed very skeptical of the Trump claims in court this past week essentially you know you talked about what the, the former president was saying on hannity mm -hmm. and how kind of preposterous his explanation is mm -hmm. about declassifying documents in front of this judge uh, trump's lawyers were trying to say hey uh we these documents uh could have been declassified by trump and then the judge was saying well were they declassified by trump and trump's lawyers refused to say whether they were or weren't well he, he just thought it yeah he just thought that's it. That's enough <laughs> and people are speculating that the reason why trump's lawyers didn't want to say that they were fully declassified these documents is because number one they weren't and number two is when you're in front of a judge and you say something false you can uh, be held accountable either for perjury or be disbarred so you know, this tells us a lot about what's going on here. I think most sensible people, no matter where you are in the political spectrum, know these things weren't declassified. If they were, there would be a paper trail. And the idea that just by thinking it, especially after the fact, which it seems like Trump is claiming, mm -hmm. especially sensitive nuclear documents and things like that, is preposterous. It's not going to stand. Now, whether anything legally comes of this, who knows? Uh, but at least the government now is the full scope to look at the evidence and use that evidence in a potential indictment if they wanted to. Got it. And so at the same time, on a more local level, Trump is also now facing down a case that Letitia James filed against her against him. Um, she's our attorney general here, which accuses Trump and his entire family, his three children as well, um, of business de deception, essentially deceiving leaders, insurers, tax authorities. Um, she said in a Twitter uh, announcement of this new case that he, quote, used basically lies to, quote, pay lower taxes, guarantee loans, and get better insurance rates. Um, she went through 11 years of financial statements and is accusing him of more than 200 false asset valuations, including one example where he has a roughly almost 11,000 square foot apartment in Trump Tower that he filed as 30,000 square feet. Um, he also inflated 12 rent stabilized units by market rate at a 65 times rate of what they're rent stabilized rate is and secured, she says, $250 million of fraudulently lower interest rates and premiums. And now she's seeking that return in damages. 
and is also seeking what's called the corporate death penalty, which would bar Trump's, like including his three children and and Donald Trump himself from ever running a business in New York. So it's a pretty severe case that's being brought against him. So, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think there's a couple of things that we could stipulate to from, from where I sit that seem to be beyond dispute here. Mm-hmm. Number one, it seems beyond dispute that this investigation by uh, Attorney General James has the appearance of politicization. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I pointed out before. Uh, during, when she ran for Attorney General, she made numerous statements about Trump, saying basically she was going to go after him. So in 2018, she gave an interview to Yahoo News in which she said, quote, the president of the United States has to worry about three things, Mueller, Cohen, and Tish James. We're all closing in on him. And then in her victory speech in November 2018, she said the following. We must do our job to ensure that the man currently occupying the Oval Office is held accountable to any and everything he has done. I've talked about this before. A lot of Democrats hate when I say this. I think there are a lot of valid investigations into Trump. I think this, the what she found appears very valid to me, mm-hmm. but she should have recused herself. I think when, when Trump and his people probably disingenuously point out how politicized she is, they have solid grounding on that. That's one thing to stipulate too. I think stipulate, stipulation too is that he seems to have committed fraud. <laughs> like with all the politicization aside, mm-hmm. this is why she should have recused herself. This probably wasn't a hard thing to prove once you got all these documents. Some of these are preposterous. Like you're, what you're talking yeah. about here are just outrageous, um, you know, in, either inflations or deflations. Like essentially what's going on here is if he's in front of tax authorities, he's trying to deflate his assets so he pays less taxes. If he's in front of banks, he wants to inflate his assets so he can get better loans. They, you know, Tish James puts the number of this at 250 million. Maybe, probably, I don't know. Uh, this seems like fraud. Now, it's always tough to prove some of this stuff because some of it's subjective. A lot of times these financial yeah. statements are- And property valuations are yeah, wildly we all know. variable. Yeah, everybody yeah. knows, like you talk to anybody in your life who owns anything, you get wildly different uh, appraisals yeah. on people's property. Now, what she does have him though is he's he was using appraisals on some of these properties as justification for loans, mm-hmm. but not but actually misstating what the appraisals were. Now that's illegal. <laughs> yeah. It's one thing to have a bad appraisal. Like a lot of us have like friends in our lives who are lucky enough to have a very low appraisal that they pay lower taxes on. That's not what's going on here. Yeah. He it's was also another thing complete opposite. To have literal like square footage that you're quoting, not right. just a, a theoretical figure of what it might go for at market value. Yeah. So a lot of this is like probably gonna go to you know create issues for him now remember she's the civil investigation which is really important for people to keep in mind so civil investigation is not criminal so we talk about penalties you talk about that possible uh, corporate death penalty that you're talking about now that seems tough they tried to do something similar with the nra when tish james brought a case against the nra she won a lot on the damages etc but she couldn't get like the full scope of the injunctive relief that she was looking for yeah. so it's possible here that there's a financial penalty eventually including all the costs of litigation and discovery mm-hmm. which trump is going to hate he already pled, pled the fifth multiple times like the entire time he was interviewed by her apparently which in a civil case it's relevant to note is relevant like if you in a criminal case plead the fifth theoretically it's not supposed to be held against you although of course if you're a jury watching that it's hard not to take that into account in a civil case it's actually you're you're allowed to take into account somebody pleading the fifth and infer something from that Mm -hmm. so you know potential jury or judge looking at this could take that into account but all that is to say maybe financial penalties down the line 
I'm with Andrew McCarthy uh, from the National Review who basically says, look, there's a lot going on here. If I were Trump, this is not the the most concerning legal case that he has. Yeah. That he, I would say the DOJ investigations, both January 6th and the Mar-a-Lago documents include, and Georgia are way more concerning if I were Trump. And also for our democracy, if I'm trying to hold a former president accountable, which I think you should be accountable to all this stuff. Everybody needs to follow the law. But if I were trying to hold the president accountable, it's the stuff like trying to steal an election in Georgia mm-hmm. or, you know, taking nuclear documents and doing Lord knows what with those or more things that if we were to hold a former president accountable, those are the kinds of things I would rather us do than this kind of stuff. Yeah. And there are also um, beyond just the penalties that I already listed. She's also seeking a 10 year oversight to make sure that everything that he's doing financially is kosher and a five-year ban on financial loans for the Trumps. Um, but there are some important caveats, as you alluded to, um, that the judge could go for less harsh consequences, that he famously does not use email. So right. the trail of proving that there was intent on some of these inflations or deflations of values is going to be difficult to prove. And then, of course, the subjectivity of the evaluation yeah. of property values in the first place. So I think that this is definitely... Um, more of a watch and wait sort of situation. And it could turn out to be a lot more moderate than what this initial release and these initial legal demands from James uh, indicate. Yeah, and I think what you're going to see potentially is that the entity is easier to peg here than the person. Mm-hmm. And for given that it's a civil case, it almost doesn't matter because so many of his assets are tied up in there. If it were criminal, obviously the personal intent is going to matter. But I think the pattern and practice here is going to be used to show mindset because a lot of times intent is important. And one way to show intent is to say, hey, here's this email of this person stating their intent. The other way to show intent is that they did it so many times that there's no other explanation Mm -hmm. for it or that the very same thing was valued differently at the same time, which shows that you knew better. Like it's one thing if you're, if everything's in the same direction, like, oh, I just got the numbers wrong and I got them wrong in the same direction every time. Mm -hmm. But if you're misstating the same thing you know, on the under, on taxes, and on the over, on loans, that starts to show that you knew better. And I think that will start to create issues for him. But all things to say is, look, this is not great for Trump. There's a lot of stuff he's legally liable for. I think this is a race at this point. This is a Berlusconi-esque race to get reelected so that he can use the immunities of his office and the political shelter that comes with running for office and being in office. That seems to be, like, if I'm, like, cynically thinking about what his move is here, I think that's his best move is to use the shelter of politicization and then the immunities of the presidential office to try to protect himself here, which doesn't completely apply in a New York state case, but we all know it's going to be 50 times harder to hold a president accountable than a former president. Well, hopefully he doesn't take your advice there. Yeah, Um, (laughs) it seems like he is, though. Uh, (laughs) Um, Well, speaking of New York, we also have another controversy um, here in the city, more specifically with vaccine mandates. Um, Just on Tuesday, Eric Adams announced that our private sector vaccine mandates for employers, as well as a mandate for student athletes to be vaccinated, are lifted, but that very notably leaves public sector employees, including public school teachers, aides, um, the fire department, police department, MTA, and all those employees still subject to these mandates, which is causing a lot of accusations of hypocrisy and a lot of questions about what the the scientific basis would be to yep. do something like that. So I think I'm, I'm curious to see where you are on this in the sense of, I think there's one thing we could do, which is celebrate the first part of the move, right? I think it's long overdue that we lifted the private sector mandates. I think 
Mm. You probably know more than I do about this. Anecdotally, nobody seemed to be following the private mm -hmm. sector mandates because of the law. I think in some cases, people were using the law as a sort of uh, a rationale to hold their employees accountable when they wanted to. But I mm. don't hear any language anymore about people being like, my company won't let me back in unless I show my vaccine because of New York. Maybe they might do it because yeah. it's a company policy, but I don't. Yeah. I don't hear too much about that. Well, so that mandate, the private sector mandate, came out at the end of last year under de Blasio. And de Blasio was very gung-ho about this. He was also um, the mastermind of the indoor dining and the restaurants and the gyms that you need to show proof of vaccination even just as a customer. Um, and so when de Blasio put that in place, he pledged to make sure that enforcement was happening. But then not long after, Eric Adams came along and said, I'm not going to enforce it. So not only do we not know how many employers were actually mandating it, there was never a mandate on boosters. So you could have gotten vaccinated at the very beginning of the camp, the vaccination rolling out. And then theoretically, just that wore off and you never got boosted. So right. the, the follow through on this mandate was very, very confusing. And um, even just this week when Adams was asked, is there data on whether this worked or it was effective? He's like, no, Yeah. period. Like that's all that he had to say. Yeah, and I and I had a chance to talk yesterday with the New York City Health Commissioner, Ashwin Vassan, who very generously gave us some time while he was down in Staten Island, actually kudos to him for going out to Staten Island. I don't think a de Blasio official would be spending too much time there. Uh, but he had a lot to say that I think is worth parsing through. So number one is we asked him about why the public mandate is still in place when the private sector mandate has been lifted. We're working on a glide path to normal and really just defining what a new normal is. As a scientist, as a doctor, as an epidemiologist, I can tell you a lot about disease transmission, disease rates. I can tell you a lot about behavior of an illness. I can tell you a lot about clinical results. What I can't tell you is how much of a disease and how much related sickness and death is tolerable for a society. And make no mistake, COVID is not going anywhere. We're going to be living with it. At what level do we need to live with it for people to feel comfortable? That's a social and a political decision that I can't make. And so, you know, what I can say is that um, we're all working to define what the new normal will look like, but that's going to have to be a, a collective decision we make together. And it's going to have to be led by our political leaders. And once we know what people are comfortable with as a society, what we're all comfortable with, then we can we have a better sense of like in what order to pull down restrictions, how to adjust, and also to establish the criteria by when we would bring it back in some in the in the rare, but um, you know, in the in the scenario where COVID mutates and becomes more virulent, more severe which we hope obviously won't happen. The sense I was getting from what he said, he didn't say this explicitly, is that they're getting ready to lift the public mandate too. He just didn't yeah, seem like he was ready was to say it. There was an indication in a recent New York Times article that he suggested that that's coming down the line, but it was not a direct quote. Right. And it's very difficult to get a sense of why that's the case. L what legal data, stuff is what I'm thinking. Yeah. Well, what data is being used to determine that. Um, you know, there's like for me, Yes, I wish I could just be celebrating that the private sector mandate was lifted. But my question is, why Like, why not? And why be like, oh, I'm not going to enforce it, but I'm also not going to just lift it. Like, why didn't yeah. we just lift it when he said that? Why then did we have the carve out for entertainers and athletes as though 
they should have some sort of special provision just because they're in the spotlight and not just a regular day-to-day person. And then why now is there any scientific or medical or public health justification for why if it's not, if it's no longer theoretically required in a private setting, what is the difference in the public setting? Yeah, and I asked this question and you know, Dr. Vasan said, um, city employees need to set the tone. And he talked about how 95% of city workers eventually got vaccinated in some form. And so he was touting, I think the fact that, so if I'm, if I'm parsing through what he was saying, this was more, sounds to me more like a justification for the original move for the public mandate, yeah. less than where we are now. Uh, but essentially what he was saying, and I, and I agree with this first part as it relates to the original mandate, which is he was like, look, like we like we can we have more of a say over what city employees can do. We can control that more. And a lot of these people are on the front lines, like my mom in nursing homes or whatever, and really important. So you know, at the time when these mandates were going down, there obviously was a lot of p- political turmoil because you had a lazy mayor already who was like senioritis uh, on steroids, De Blasio, who's issuing a big mandate that he's not really looking to follow up on. Followed by Eric Adams, who seemed less into it, but didn't seem ready to take the political stance of pulling it back for one reason or another. And I agree with you that he probably just should have back then, not not even probably should have just rescinded the private sector mandate back then. Uh, Obviously at the time, the data was strongly suggestive of people with vaccines. And I believe this this is why I've taken the vaccine and have been a proponent of certain types of mandates that vaccinated people at that time were less likely to die and be hospitalized Mm -hmm. due to COVID uh, and especially boosted people. And so there's like a strong rationale there uh, for people with whether it's within the city workforce and the private sector to do that. There's a whole debate that we've had on the show many times about what's coercive and what's not, et cetera. The rationale made sense then. I think what I did not hear from Dr. Vassan here though is what today separates those two. And my real sense is they're just getting ready to change it. I do think that they should have done both together. The only explanation I can think of is that there's some legal stuff tying this whole thing up where they because they've fired some people, they're trying to dot their I's and, and cross their T's to make sure that, I guess, if they want to continue moving forward with the sort of concept, like, you know, mm-hmm. defending their firings, which I know we're going to talk yeah. about, uh, that there's something about lifting the mandate that may cause them some issues there. That's the only yeah. explanation I can think of. Yeah. Well, I want to respond to two things that you mentioned. First is that people who are vaccinated are, there's data that came out of North Carolina that controlled for age and your risk of dying or if you're boosted, if you're just vaccinated initially from COVID or being hospitalized. And those who are vaccinated, it's very clear that they have a much lower risk of dying and like almost virtually zero if they're boosted, regardless of their age adjusted. Um, Obviously, the older you are, the more likely you are too, but you have the self-protective mechanism. And so because there's data that showed like with Omicron, it's only roughly like 24% reduced chance of of transmission. To me, that makes me feel like the, the better public health message would have been, here's the data that shows you that you are going to protect yourself. Make that choice and protect yourself. I don't see the benefit of 
going after that 5% or whatever percent of people who are hesitant on vaccines to vaccinate themselves, especially if they're not at an at-risk category or if they're an FDNY uh, like firefighter who's young and is worried about myocarditis risk, which is also a very small risk, but still like that you're allowed to be, you're allowed to be concerned about something like that. And I think I feel especially bad for the frontline workers who during the pandemic, you know, firefighters didn't have the option to just do like work from home in their bed with their laptop. They were out on the front lines. Police officers were out on the front lines. They were the people who were getting COVID in the initial waves because of their job that they were doing for the city for public service. They were consistently at the front lines bearing the burden. And now some of them are being fired for not getting the vaccine. Like to me, it just seems like this added layer of not only was there a vaccine mandate in the first place, which you can agree with or disagree with, but what we're talking about right now is that they're the last ones to have that rolled back. And that yeah. doesn't feel fair to me. Yeah, I on the first part, I think where you and I depart and we've talked about on this pod before is, you know, I think about my mom, for example, there still was at every point in the data, uh, and there's different percentages, but a significant, it might not be 90%, right? It could be 10, 20, 30, 40% transmission decrease if you have it the cha vaccine. It has changed so frequently though with, the, with new variants. And now we have this new booster, which Eric Adams got while he was talking about rescinding this mandate, which is, which they are optimistic will reduce transmission. But with the but what rates I'm saying of is like, even if it were small, like let's say it's 10%, right? Okay. Uh, my mom, you know, as a nurse, shows up every day at a city job, like like those firefighters has to do that job. Yeah. To me, when I think about, is this a mandate that I want in place? I think about her safety and her patient's uh, safety. And to me that even taking like an extreme, like 10% decrease in transmission risk, I'm like, that is worth it to me so that my mom could show up to that job. And if I weigh that against whatever myocarditis risk or the firefighters, et cetera, I I'm willing to make that uh, that I'm. But isn't make there that a tremendous a tremendous distinction between your mom as a public worker in healthcare versus a firefighter? But let's say she was or, a firefighter, which would be preposterous teacher. if you met her. But even if she's a teacher, if she's a okay, if she, she's a she's teacher, the risk when we too, have not just her patients. Like she, my mom is at risk showing up to work, not just the people who she's serving. So that's that's part of what my equation is. But part of what I'm saying is I think you and I can agree to disagree about that trade off, and I think. My theory of government well, is Well, like, I, I don't think I disagree about that trade-off. I think that trade-off is completely legitimate. Like, for example, my dad, who's very much at risk, like I made sure that he was the first person with a vaccine. Right. Like 100%. But I think it's a very individual thing. And that trade-off, like empowering people with the data and the information instead of having these very opaque, obscure, rolling back some mandates for some people. If you're an athlete, you're special. Agree with if all you're, that. Yeah. So I, I just would, I think that the, the, fundamental problem with this pandemic and the way that it was managed was that people were not entrusted with the data to make their own decisions. And you can say like people wouldn't have made the right decision or this or that. But when you look at the rates of elderly people who got vaccinated, they were exceptionally high. People are capable of assessing the risk. Maybe not everyone. There's always people who aren't. But then taking that data away from them, obscuring the rationale behind yeah. public well, health things, like that made it so much worse. Well, now it's a political issue. Now it's a partisan yeah, issue. Yeah, well, let me at least, here's where I disagree and then I'll get to where I agree. To me, I treat differently individual health decisions from health decisions that have some kind of 
commons effect. And to me, like transmissibility of diseases is a commons, especially but when you're, you're in a public okay, job. But transmission, we, there's the issue of transmission, which there's throughout different times in the pandemic, variable data on how effective the vaccine was in stopping the spread. We know that there were so many big breakthrough cases with Omicron. So that's one thing. But if we know that we have a self-protective mechanism in the vaccine and that you don't have to be completely dependent on those around you to have a slightly lower transmission rate for giving it to you in the first place. Like if you can take the vaccine and know that that's a self-protective mechanism, in a very like you can be very confident unless you're at an extreme risk category that your your odds of dying or being hospitalized are significantly lower so that takes that makes it a personal choice and a personal protective mechanism which i think is actually like a really good thing about this vaccine is that it didn't mean that every single person had to have it yeah but i think like in a lot of these jobs we talk about firefighters we talk about cops uh we talk about teachers uh your personal choices stop at the point where you walk through the threshold of your public sector job like for example you know mm -hmm. you could have a personal choice of your wardrobe for example but you know you're a new york city police officer you got to wear long sleeve wool blue ugly uniforms in the middle of the summer and sometimes your personal choice is i want to be safe but you take a job and they're gonna be like you know what i'm gonna put you on a corner that had five shootings over the past you know two weeks and your personal safety is going to be at risk because we as a city have made a cost benefit analysis about where you're gonna be at a given time, what you're gonna wear, et cetera, yeah. because you've taken on the job. Now, where I agree with you though, is there's too much arbitrariness to this. Yeah, so, like, I mean, and wouldn't you, you feel, know. if you were a cop who was hesitant about the vaccine, wouldn't you feel like this is just like such a kick in the shin that it's now, after you were expected to be in the front line without the vaccine, maybe you got COVID, that now you're the last person to have this mandate rolled back for? It just yeah. feels, it feels so absurd and asinine, and I don't understand why why we need to continue to like claw like dig our claws into these arbitrary measures and make people feel like there is an increased dis disconnect between the data the science the statistics and what their public health or their public health officials are doing like you, you just spoke agree to the health commissioner and we yeah. don't like what answers you yeah, get from let, that yeah let's 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 talk about him for a second because i do think he he had some answers that i think lend some credence to the fact that there there are some issues with the transparency around decision making and also just like admitting mistakes. I asked him at the end of the interview, hey, what's one thing you're really proud of that you've done? Uh, and he quickly answered that. And then I asked him, hey, what's one thing you do differently? And, and he didn't have an answer for what he'd do differently. But yeah. I think anybody who lives in the city could answer that for him. You've just named a yeah, few things like totally. the, the issue with toddlers. Uh, the issue with sporting figures, but not high school sporting figures, you know, the fact that we had the private sector mandate like long after it was being ignored, right? And then that's just the stuff you and I agree with. And then yeah. there's stuff that you might like and definitely have issues with that I don't. Now, everybody can point to those things. And so I, I, I like our health commissioner. I don't, I didn't love that answer. He did give an interesting answer though on the why now for the private sector piece, which eventually hopefully becomes a why now for the public sector. I said, what data have you been relying upon? And his answer is actually more specific than I was uh, than I had imagined based on some other public statements he's made. He says there's a dissociation between case transmission rates and severity of illness. And he says, and I didn't have enough time this morning to really check this out, but our, our listeners can check out this claim. Send us a note if you're able to verify this claim or not. He says there's a five to, to four to five month trend showing that essentially like we're seeing transmissions go up. Yeah. but the severity of illness not follow that. And for the fact that that's been going on for months was what he was relying upon 
when he rolled back the mm -hmm. mandates. That's what he said. I, I don't yeah. have enough time to gut check that. And he also said two other things have been relevant. Number one, the high vaccination rates. Uh, and then the fact that New York City has been really successful in giving out uh, Paxlovid. And he, he claimed, and he's probably right about this based on what I've, I've seen, that we've been flooding the sort of streets essentially with Paxlovid in ways that a lot of cities haven't. Yeah. And so the combination of those two things has been successful. This is why like, I think there are some issues with what this administration has done, but I think like in the end, I give them like a solid B minus when you put it all together because of some of these later things that he's that they've done. Yeah, I dock them considerable points for not enforcing it regardless of the data. If there's a data point that made them decide to drop it, I right. don't like it's just didn't make sense to me that it was just there just for the sake of being there. I don't know right. if they didn't want the bad PR of having rolled it back and then there's another wave or something, but that I take issue with. And then B, I don't see how any of that rationale does not apply to the public sector. Right. Whether or not you agree with the the mandate in the first place, the way that it's being rolled back yeah. is crazy to me. Yeah. So let's move to charter schools. There's some new data out of California. Yeah, and actually this is data that goes beyond charters actually. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's an article from the 74 by Joshua Bay, which took some data um, from USC and some other, it's USC PACE, they do a poll every year. And it, this poll talks about uh, where people are going with their kids and why they're doing it. Mm -hmm. And what they found is pretty startling about the you know educational reality for people on the ground mm -hmm. in California. So they found that one in four California parents have switched their child's school during the pandemic with most transferring from traditional public schools to public charter schools. And um, what's really fascinating here is that when you see public support for charter schools, you tend to see black and brown families very supportive of it and progressives, you know, white families, especially white progressives being more skeptical yeah. recently of charter schools because of some in-group progressive politics. But it's actually the more affluent Democrats in this case, you know, white parents, families with English as their primary language, households earning more than $150,000 a year. Mm -hmm. The ones who traditionally have been skeptical of charters, it seems like something happened during this pandemic. Yeah. That has pushed them towards charter schools where you've seen a pretty significant enrollment increase for charters. So just to put some data on this, 52% of parents sent their kids to traditional public schools uh, before the pandemic. Now it's 41%. That's a massive decrease. In mm -hmm. contrast, it was 15% of kids attending charter schools in California. Now 23%. That's an eight percentage point increase. That's startling data. Yeah. it's And it's interesting to hear the reasons that parents give. Um, there was a, a poll which allowed them to give multiple reasons. So these take these data points as you will. But 38% was the most popular response. Um, a different educational experience is what they're looking for, which is incredibly broad. It could be a CRT thing. It could just be like it could be virtually anything. Right. So I don't think you can read too much into that data point. But 31% had a dissatisfaction specifically with how the school managed COVID, yep. which I imagine a lot of that is frustrations over, especially in California, um, the optics of like the governor sending his kids to a private school that's open and in person while actively advocating for public schools to be closed. The right. union powers especially um, obvious in that state. And then 30% uh, express a desire for more individualized learning, which um, is interesting as well. But I think it's also important to note that 28% of people said that they moved in the process. Right. So there could be just some logistical things where, yeah. you know, they end up like 
thinking of something that they might not have thought of before if they're in a different zip code. And what's fascinating is 74 interviewed some parents about this. And, you know, they interviewed parents of different demographics, mm -hmm. different reasons of leaving. And some of these quotes are really interesting to me. So you talked about labor, for example, like the role of labor. And, you know, this is what one parent, uh, Carrie Kangro, who took one of her kids out of a traditional public school and, and brought them into a public charter school. She, this is what she said. She says, we love the specific teachers at our LA USD school, the LA Unified School mm -hmm. District, but no one was standing up for our kids. So we went to a charter school and it's nice because they don't have to deal with all of this. <laughs> she was yeah. talking about, um, and she talked about uh, the UTLA, which is the union, was keeping schools closed as a bargaining chip to get things they wanted. Kanger said, uh, granted teachers do need better pay, smaller classes, and the whole laundry list of things they've been fighting for, and I'm behind them on that, but it was just the wrong time and they sacrificed yeah. their kids' mental health for it. So basically she's saying they're using it for bar bargaining chips. And I think that resonates with a lot of people. And this is not just a California story. There was another article this week in the 74 by Linda Jacobson, which showed that essentially the same trends are true nationally, where you're seeing mm -hmm. uh, parents leaving traditional public schools, uh, charter school enrollment is increasing nationally, but you're also seeing the rise of alternative models like homeschooling in certain places yeah. like North Carolina and then the use of vouchers in places like Arizona. In general, just people are dissatisfied with their options in the traditional public school. Yeah, and one thing that I found that was interesting in researching this point is um, that when you ask people whether they're supportive of school choice or charter uh, sort of setups politically, they're much more likely to say yes if you actually explain to them what that means. Right. If you ask them just cold versus you ask them having said, this is actually what that would mean for students. Right. Um, and that's true across all demographics and across all age groups, all political orientations. How do you think you can close that gap in, in a culture where it seems like people are theoretically behind this, but there's a lot of kind of external things they might be hearing or stigmas around what charter or school choice means? I think that the, the movement of parents in jurisdictions that have healthy charter markets is doing the work for us. So this poll shows that in California, 71% of parents sur uh, surveyed support charter schools. It's a 15 mm. point increase from 2020 to 2022. That's massive. So in, in places where they have charters, which for people who are listening are like, you might be in a jurisdiction that doesn't have them, uh, charter schools are usually uh, the vast majority are nonprofit institutions running running public schools that are run independent of the school district. So mm -hmm. they have to take the same state tests. They have to abide by certain regulations, but they don't necessarily have to be union and they don't have to answer to the same school board. They're given a charter. Usually in my case, I was running charter schools. I was a school principal and superintendent of charter schools. We were given 10 years with a five-year midway point where they said, all right, you're going to hit certain results. Uh, and if you don't hit those results, we're going to shut you down. So you're given more autonomy, but more accountability, right? That's what a charter is. Now, to me, the data is moving because parents now, it, it used to be you just send your kid to your own school, but with COVID and some of the other turbulence going on, parents are moving more. So they're starting mm -hmm. to talk to each other more to be like, hey, I'm not just going to take for granted that that school down the street for me is a school I'm going to send my kid to. It might not even be open. So let yeah. me talk to other parents who are sending their kids to other schools. And so what you used to see as a black and brown phenomenon, like my schools were mostly black and brown, um, you're starting to see these white progressives who traditionally look down on charters and say that's school choice, that's bad. Meanwhile, they're exercising school choice by sending their kids to private schools or moving to the right neighborhood. They're now saying, whoa, now I wanna take advantage of this type of school choice that other people were using. That's gonna change the politics of this. Yeah, and one thing I'm curious about um, to get your take on, which I think has weighed on my mind is 
the pandemic was obviously like a shock to the system and people had their kids at their kitchen tables and they're exposed to things to a degree that they never have been before. But I think a lot of the effects of the pandemic are kind of being memory hold. Mm -hmm. Do you think this this has staying power, like this shift that we're seeing will continue to grow? Yeah, because I think in contrast to, you know, some of us like me, who, you know, I might have just been working from home for a year and now I'm back in the office. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you move your kid from one school to another, that has that sticks in a certain kind but of way. But it's also a lot of work for parents who, you know, their kid might have just entered a school and, you know, the end, and it's a stressful time and people are getting their feet back on the ground post-pandemic. Do you think that there's, for, for new generations of kids coming in, that this is going to have staying power going forward? Yeah, as somebody who, like, very transparently believes in these schools, I ran them, I'm an advocate for them. These parents who've switched from traditional public schools to charter schools are going to be the most important advocates for these schools because they know the difference now. Mm-hmm. They can talk about the comparison point. And for years, people like me were talking about our results. Like when we were running Nashville Prep and Republic, we were producing jaw-droppingly amazing results for our schools. And then there's you know places like Credo, Stanford's research arm, mm-hmm. which is the gold standard for measuring uh academic performance of traditional and charter public schools came out with a report in 2015 that's just pretty dramatic results for urban and i want to emphasize urban public charter schools like which is what we tend to talk about in these debates Mm -hmm. it showed that 40 days of additional learning in math and 28 additional days of learning and reading are what you get per year in a charter school the equivalent of not the actual days but just being in a charter means that you're getting the equivalent of that extra learning, which when mm-hmm. you accumulate over time, that means multiple grade levels of learning growth. We talk about the results, but the results are are not as powerful in the abstract unless you have the parents who are going to be the advocates for them. And these are going to be some of the strongest advocates for it. One nuance to the data, though, it's really important to mention is that two years earlier, there was the same study from the same organization that looked at, uh, that also looked at suburban and rural charter schools, and those results are way more mixed. Mm-hmm. And partially because some of the states that have a lot of those schools, Michigan, Arizona, Ohio, Florida, have two lax laws around charters. They're not well-regulated, which is mm-hmm. a whole separate segment. But the urban charter school data is very strong. And that's why you see a lot of support for these schools in urban areas. What do you think the, the long-term political implications are here as Democrats sort of take a hard line against charters generally? And there's the Yunkin effect kind of going on in Virginia, what what are the political implications? It's really fascinating because traditionally charter schools came out of a bipartisan consensus. And actually the original conception of charter schools was from Albert Shanker, the head of the New York City Teachers Union. Mm -hmm. So, and he he thought of charters as an opportunity for innovation in schools. And then you saw, you know, many decades of consensus on charter schools, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, uh, Barack Obama, Obama, and unfortunately for people in the movement like me, Trump also, mm-hmm. although I'm not sure he would even be able to say what a charter is, but all their administrations were supportive of charters. And it was actually Barack Obama's support of charters that got me even interested in the concept in the first place. Mm-hmm. But now you see uh, a lot of national democratic politicians, especially the white progressives who oppose charter schools because of how close they are to the teachers unions. Charters tend to not be teachers union oriented, but also the base of democratic politics tend to be uh, highly educated white progressives drive the agenda, even though they are not numerically the majority. Mm-hmm. They tend to t- capture the attention of politicians at the national level. And so you see politicians like Warren who flipped on charters. She had written years ago, like even supporting vouchers, but then she flipped on uh, on charters, in my opinion, because of the Massachusetts Teachers Union. You know, Bernie's very opposed to them, et cetera. You have those people on one side, but then you have people like Cory Booker who wrote in a 2019 op-ed that will link 
forcefully depending, defending charter schools. His mayor of Newark, he was one of the most pro-charter pro members um, of the Democratic Party, and he offers a, even more forcefully the Obama vision, essentially saying this is inconvenient for the politics of the Democratic Party, but the people who need us the most love these schools. Mm -hmm. I think the Cory Bookers of the world are gonna, are gonna have more, um, they're gonna have you know more momentum behind their position. You're gonna see them more stridently defending their position now that you're starting to see you know this sentiment grow not just within the ranks of communities of color, but also those white progressives who are so loud and I think who puff their chests out on Twitter more than other people. Yeah, well, this is certainly encouraging data for some bipartisan support growing in the future. So exciting data. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about self checkout. Okay, what's let's this all do about, that. Ricky? Um, so this is actually a Wegmans story, which I grew up going to Wegmans. There's going to be one on Astor Place. I'm very excited. Yeah, they have I've trains been, I've been waiting that, for that too. I go around by the every ceiling. Day. Yeah. I thought that was very cool when I was a kid. But they had a self-checkout app that they are now rolling back. It was a scan and go sort of situation. So as you put something in your cart, you just scan it on your cell phone. But they had too many losses, is what they're referring to it as, um, which is essentially theft. Uh, or it could just be mistakes there's it could be a combination there but they did not release any data they sent um $20 coupons to all the frequent users of the app Walmart had a similar situation recently where they rolled back a self-scanning checkout uh, situation as well but I think the conversation here is less Wegmans oriented and more generally you know we we have especially during the pandemic these have become way more popular mechanisms of checking out and we have a kind of like you can't have nice things sort of situation going on here because there are people who are stealing as a result of that. And I think it's an interesting kind of cultural question and issue. Yeah, there's some funny TikTok videos out there that you can't play because you have to actually watch them to really mm -hmm. understand what we're talking about, where people are kind of showing what I think some of us have experienced in some of these places where you do the self-checkout, there's nobody watching you. And like maybe one, you, you scan one item, it goes through, you wave the other one through, maybe it doesn't scan, and you just kind of look around and you just throw it all in the bag, right? Uh -huh. Now, Have you done that? I've done that, uh, admittedly. Uh -huh. And I would say that there's a part of me that shows up <laughs> in a little bit of the online discourse around this, where you almost think you're, like there's like a little psychological, like, I don't know, like, like a, a move you do in your head where you're like, I'm sticking it to the man for, for not having an employee here. It's yeah, almost a self-justification. No, know? I don't really um, feel like that's sticking it to the man. One thing I, okay, I don't, I have not done that, but one thing that I do do sometimes is I'll like not scan. Now in New York, you have to buy your shopping bags. Yeah. And so I won't scan that. It's like 33 cents, but I think that. Oh, I so stick, you do it too. I know, I'm sticking oh, it to the man of the government. I'm sticking it to the, in, the government mandate that required that I buy that bag, but, but there, even though the store did not require there is it. A, is an important mechanism here at work, which is, for me, not since I was a teenager, have I walked into a store and in full plain sight, stuffed something in my pocket and walked out, right? We could talk about why I did that as a teenager, but that's a whole separate conversation. <laughs> okay. Uh, that, but as an adult, I would obviously never do that. I hope uh -huh. people would understand. But there, there's something about the plausible deniability and the ethics of it that yeah. combine to be like, not your average shoplifters anymore, where you're just like, if they pulled you aside and they're like, hey, did you pay? You have an easy explanation. You're like, oh, mm -hmm. I thought it's skin, like technology, what? Yeah. You know, but like. The thing I don't really understand is I feel like at least in the self-checkouts that I've been through, they have like the the weight thing so they mm -hmm. can tell if you've 
put something yeah, in the bag. We all know that stuff doesn't really work that way. I don't like yeah. for me, every time I go through, I have to like get an employee to come help because I like moved something in the bag and then it thinks that I stole it or right. something. So uh, t- to me, it's like almost over. Well, the thing that's mystical to me are the things in the airports now, which I think is also the same technology in some of these Amazon stores where you scan your credit card on the way in. Yeah. And then you grab stuff and then you just walk out and it knows what you took yeah. that's cool and they I, have that tells virtually me that this no thefts is, yeah. in amazon so to me this is like just a technological yeah. issue and i think there's um now they're twice as widespread as they were before the pandemic the, the pandemic was the yeah. yeah the self-checkout was the the mechanism that i think just like the pandemic promoted and a lot of stories weren't ready to implement it in like the most high-tech way right but then you have these amazon self-checkouts where they're not super popular. People are kind of creeped out about them, yeah. but I think that's just something that people are going to get used to. Yeah. Um. And th- I think technological advances will kind of negate this yes. issue. This is a temporary problem um, for sure. A hundred percent. But Walmart's that, also followed. Wegmans also in pulling back on this technology. Yeah. So this is at least a temporary issue we see. And there's some data that we have to suggest that you know some version of like this one data point seems to suggest that we've gone from two percent. Uh, of items, either items or revenue that's stolen to 4% when you self-checkout, yeah. which you'd say, all right, it's that's like, like a lot losses. of money. But then you think about, yeah. well, you have to factor in the amount of staff that's saved uh, there so that 2% could be right worth now, it for I some people. I feel people. like every time I go through self-checkout, I have more staff interaction yeah, just trying year. to fix things and they're scanning their employee codes and this and that. But an interesting other statistic is that I have 20- a funny story about that okay, though, before you go let's, on. Let's, let's, I, was up in, I was up in Woodstock and I went into a CVS this weekend I was the only person in this massive CVS and it was self-checkout. But I was on the phone. I was going to go to the cashier, but I felt it was rude if I would go to the cashier on the phone. So I was like, I'm just going to do the self-checkout. And the self-checkout made her come. It did the whole thing, see an attendant anyway. So I'm like, what is this? Like, why why does she have to come here and sign off on it? It's not self-checkout anymore. Definitely was forced to like move leaps and bounds during the pandemic. And I think it wasn't really ready to do that in most places. And it also costs like $125,000 on average just to set up four lanes. So yeah, that's got to get cheaper. Yeah, I think think right now it's a clunky system. Um, But also one thing I found that was interesting is that 20% of people who've gone through self-checkout just yeah, admit like me, to yeah. have stolen, yeah. which I'm sure it's much higher it's if movement. it's 20% is yeah. admitting it. So, I mean, I think there's this whole cultural conversation of just public trust and like, can yeah. we trust one another? And the answer, at least living in New York, this is not surprising to me. I've seen people just waltz in and steal literal bagfuls of things and they don't care everyone yeah. sees, but. People will probably point out the hypocrisy of me, point, like getting mad at people for that and then stealing myself, but we'll talk about that another day. There's also <laughs> another uh, cultural conversation now in uh, the New York Post had a write-up of this and it had some reactions people had mm-hmm. to the Wegmans move. And this is one quote from somebody. Removing its scan app will single-handedly ruin the way I shop from now on. Cannot believe they're doing away with this incredible service. <laughs> so it's like, wait a minute, this thing didn't, it's almost like the Louis C.K. thing. This thing didn't even exist a couple years ago. Now you're saying it's yeah. like ruined your shopping experience. I also don't like, what feel are we like the about? apps are the future of this stuff. No. Like if you like if you decide to put something back, you can't. The airport thing is a perfect example. It's not yeah. an app-based thing. It's, it's, exactly. it's actually the credit card technology that allows you to scan the credit card that is doing the work for you. Because yeah. then it knows that when, when you're on your way out, scanning it again, that seems to be the future. I, I think that definitely is. I think it'll control for this. But for the time being, history will show that we cannot trust people, to be honest. Ourselves. Including, I can't trust apparently, yeah. you. Yeah. I just steal the bags. That's yeah. all. Yeah, just the bags. The bags just are the now bags part of the experience. Cents. Yeah, the bags are now part of the experience. I mean, that's the government's fault for making that more expensive. 
Well, with that, that's all we've got today. Uh, We'll be back on the show next Tuesday. Have a great weekend, everybody. We'll see you next week. The Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Editing and sound design by Monica Espitia and Joe Engelbrecht. Video editing by Ava Maldonado. 